Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And now, live from beautiful Myrtleby, South Carolina, you're watching My Fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Yes. Oh, thank you. Oh. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, please. Oh, no, no, you. No, I'm clapping for you. Keep clapping. Keep clapping. Clap for the Wednesday miracle. How would we know that you wanted the Wednesday miracle if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. Thank you for joining us tonight, Wednesday, October the, was it the 13th already? Every week I, I do this where I'm, I'm freaking out how this year's almost over, but I am happy to be here. Why? Because you're here with me. But also because this is going to be a fantastic show, we have a really, really cool guest, and we're going to be talking about a really important subject that is getting more important by the day, especially if you're a small business owner. So more on that soon. As you know, this is a Muddy Waters Media production. Check us out on all social media venues, on all podcasting platforms, everywhere that something can be on the internet like this, and even some things where they prefer we not be on the internet like this, we're still there. Check us out. Also go to muddywatersmedia.com and anchor.fm slash muddied waters for all of your podcasting, and also be sure, of course, to become a subscriber. Join the muddied militia become a mudsketeer. We still haven't actually figured out what we're going to call this, but become a member and a subscriber by going to anchor.fm slash muddywater slash subscribe. Get access to members-only content and a monthly uh, members-only Zoom call, the Muddied Zoom, uh, that we will also be live streaming so you can make all your friends jealous that you get to hang out with us and they don't until they become a member too. So it's actually kind of a trap to get your friends to join. Anyway, uh, this intro, this episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the second largest caucus in the Waffle, in the, well, it's actually the largest caucus at Waffle House, but it's the second largest caucus in the Libertarian Party and the fastest growing one. At this pace, the Waffle House Caucus will be the largest caucus in the Libertarian Party. Take that for whatever it's worth. Uh, Become a member today by going to the Facebook group Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus and also go to the Muddy Waters Media Store to become an official voting member, which means absolutely nothing. We don't vote on it. It's a giant joke. But you can go to the store and you can buy Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus shirts and buttons, and I think a hat. I think we have a hat too. Not 100% sure on that, but the Gravy King. Cumberland Cannabis Co. If you want viable, ethical, and effective Delta and CBD products made lovingly and viably and ethically and effectively in Cumberland County, Tennessee, go to cumberlandcannabisco.com and you will get weed, actually. Uh, Joe Soloski is running for governor of Pennsylvania. Joe Soloski is the key to Pennsylvania success. And if you want to help him become the first libertarian governor ever, go to joesoloski.com. That's J-O-E-S-O-L-O-S-K-I.com. 
Mudwater, the most appropriately named sponsor to ever be on Muddy Waters Media. If you woke up today and said, Spike, my God, I am so sick of coffee, and if I never have another cup again, it'll be too soon, and I'll feel like I've lost my mind. Well, you probably already have because you're yelling at me first thing in the morning. I don't even hear you. I have no, I don't even know, I don't probably don't even know you, but, but if you don't want to have coffee anymore and you want something similar to it, you can have this. It's made of masala chai, cacao, mushrooms, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon, and the honey you should probably put in it too, because it doesn't, I mean, it tastes like what you would expect those ingredients to taste like if you put them together, but it is very effective. Uh, I use it every day. And if you want to have one seventh of the caffeine of coffee, just enough caffeine to get you happy like this. But not so much caffeine that you end up in a funk at the end of the day, like this. Then go to muddywatersmedia.com slash mud and get some mud water today. Jack Casey has written three books. What are they about? I will never know. I refuse to read them because they're a sponsor. And if they're bad, I'll feel bad for trying to get you to buy them. And if they're good, I'll feel bad for making fun of them for the past several months. So you'll have to read them for yourself and find out. I am told... I am told by people who have purchased them that these books are in fact good, which is good. Then they start to tell me what they're about and I go, ah, because I don't want to hear it. I don't, I don't want to know what these books are about. But if you go to theroyalgreen.com, you can find out what these books are about. Adderpan, the most horrifying video game to ever be made or played. Available on Steam for some reason. I don't know why, but it's there. They do allow it and it's only $5. Uh, plus the cost of your ongoing mental health care for you and your loved ones. Uh, Adderpan's the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it, if you're into that, then have at it. I would definitely stop drinking coffee and start using mud water before you do this, because holy crap. Uh, Adderpan, available on Steam for $5. Thomas Queter is running for state senate uh, in the 52nd district of New York. Thomas Queter says, I run better than Albany, which is hilarious, because he's in a wheelchair. I, I hate, he makes me say that, and it's not... It is so uncomfortable saying that. Anyway, Thomas Creter's a really great guy. He's one of the most loving and caring and, and dedicated people. His character is second to none. Uh, he is, he would, the 52nd District of New York couldn't do any better than Thomas Queter, even if he keeps making me feel uncomfortable for making, he literally, in the notes, he wants me to say, and that's funny, because he's a cripple, and I just, I can't, I, Thomas Queter, if you want to help Thomas Queter become the first libertarian state senator in New York ever, go to tomfor52.com, that's T-O-M-F-O-R 52.com. Our newest sponsor is Defy the Power and Stitches and Glitches. Now, if you watch Muddy Waters Media, you've seen their tumblers that we've auctioned off before and that I've used myself. These tumblers are insanely high quality. They are insanely high. Uh, they, they're very good at keeping your cool's cool and your hot's hot. And you don't even have to tell it which is which. It somehow knows. It somehow knows if you want it to be cold or hot. I clearly don't know much about science, but it knows. And also, and this is insane, it's free to customize it. You just pay the same cost for the tumbler, no matter what you have them do, which I've never heard of before. I'm not sure it's a good idea for them to do it, but yet they're doing it. So I have to advertise it. The all customizations are free. And if you see the kind of customizations they do, you will be as shocked as I am to say it. Uh, they, uh, if you go to either Defy the Power uh, for the libertarian political stuff and Stitches and Glitches for everything else, or I guess technically if you're customizing it, you can go to either. Uh, and if you use the code MUDDYTUMBLER, you get 10% off. But not 10% off the customization because that part's free. Again, I don't get it. 
If after watching these ads, you say, Spike, I'm horrified, I'm angry, you've wasted my time, and I'm going to sue you. Well, if you're in Florida, good luck, pal, because I'm going to sue you back with personal injury attorney Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. If you go to chrisreynoldslaw.com, uh, you'll see who I'm going to sue you with, and you're probably going to be scared, and you probably will back off trying to sue me. But if you're in Florida and you want to sue someone else, you should go to personal injury attorney Chris Reynolds, attorney at law, by going to chrisreynoldslaw.com. He will get you so much money that it's, you know, again, like the, I've said this before, but you know like how people walk around and they have these big stacks of money and they pretend it's like a phone and they're like, hey, mom, how are you? I'm sorry. Oh, 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 this is one of my big stacks of money. That's what you can do after you hire Chris Reynolds to sue someone. I can't promise that, but I mean, if anyone can get you big stacks of money, it's Chris Reynolds, chrisreynoldslaw.com. The intro and outro music to this and every single episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Go to his Facebook, his SoundCloud, go to his Bandcamp, joedavimusicbandcamp.bandcamp.com. You can buy his entire discography. It's like 25 bucks. He just dropped a new album. All this music, years worth of music. Go right now. Thank you so much, Joe Davi. I'd like to thank Le Bleu for this delicious drinking water that I'm drinking on this episode of My Fellow Americans. It is oxygenated with ozone, BPA-free, non-carbonated, and kosher certified, just like me. Ulevanaka. It is good water. Shout out to Tehran Turks' mom and him as always. Folks, my guest tonight is a recovering investment banker, and I can't Wait to find out what that actually means. Uh, she's a recovering investment banker and a small business expert. She has been named a top 100 small business influencer uh, for uh, 2011 to 2015 by the Small Biz Trends. She is a frequent panelist on networks like Fox Business, CNBC, MSNBC, and CNN. Her first book, The Entrepreneur Equation, uh, is a New York Times bestseller. And her new book, which I am looking for here, because I put it in the no oh, I put it on the net. I'll have to show you a picture of the book because I put it in the wrong frame. But uh, her new her new book, The War on Small Business, was just released uh, and is available at all major booksellers. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please welcome to the show Ms. Carol Roth. Car- there it is. <laughs> there you go, Carol. Thank you so much for coming on. Stacks of cash for my ears, which I actually should, since I'm I'm pretty good at making people a lot of money uh, as well as your as uh, one of your advertisers. But I I figured I would just add that in for a little visual. Hi, Spike. Hi, how are you doing? No, it's perfect. And now I have this book thing, which is less powerful now that I'm not you know referencing <laughs> it in an intro. But there it is. Uh, and yeah, we can get so like moving forward, you want to get and the thing is, if you do it like from the side, they can be one dollar bills. You don't have to show them. maybe have like a hundred where they can see I'm it on the front and back. I'm just, not an amateur. I'm not an amateur. I'm going to go. I'm going to go full out if I'm going to bother doing it. All yeah. hundreds. All hundreds. Yeah, just, all hundreds all, all the time. Real, you know, not like sometimes they use the fake money, but I'm really glad we could do this because you and I have been like trying to do this for almost 24 hours. So I'm glad that we were. Able yes. To it has been so hard to, to, to nail you down for, for minutes, entire minutes. It has, I have, I have spent just pining to be able to get you on the show. No, this has been, so I, you are actually on a list and I can promise you, I mean, I can pull up the list. You have been on a list of people for me to contact. As a fellow Jew, I'm not super comfortable being on lists, just putting it out there. Wow. Okay. So you're going to be worse than me on this show. Oh, nobody, nobody filled you in on that. Okay. No, no one told me that you would be worse than me. No, this is good. This is good because then people will say, I, I look, I look forward to watching Spike because he's just a breath of fresh air being so sober and serious all the time. So no, that'll be perfect. You can be the Gilbert Gottfried of this episode. 
Um, yeah. So that'll be great. But I, but um, I was so, in fact on a list as you click. You were, and it was a good list. It was a good list. It was not the list. It was a list. Uh, it was, it was, it was not Schindler's list. It was a, it was a bit, well, actually Schindler's list was a good list. It was, it was, it was like a, it was a Schindler's list of who I'm going to invite to my show. Um, and so then when I saw that I was being tagged in, uh, in someone saying you should come on Money Waters, I'm like, perfect. And so now here you are. This is great. We're going to have a fantastic time. Uh, you are, I, I have to start with this recovering investment banker. What is that? I have to know what that means. So recovering investment banker, it's basically a 12 step process. And I never really get out of step 11 because once you have done lots and lots of deals and transactions, there's always someone who's like, oh, can you help me take a look at this? Or can I get your advice on this thing? Or right, you know, right. this and the other thing. And I happen to sit on some boards that are always looking at deals. So I've never quite extracted myself fully from investment banking and deal making, um, although you know it, it is not what I consider my profession. Okay, okay. So it's it's similar. So it, there's it's not like a place you go. Process. Is there a place where you go and you get up and go? My name is Carol. I am an investment banker, and I was like, "Hello, Carol." And that is that like so you're yeah, not there. Yeah, everyone's wearing fleece Patagonia vests, and yes. you know, that's the sort of how it rolls. Yeah. yeah, Balenciaga slippers and stuff. And they're like, hello, exactly. hello, Carol. Thank you so much. Okay, all right, good. So you actually, so you, uh, early career in investment banking, you actually became an officer at the at the bank at the age of 25. What yeah. got, I have to add, so what got you into investment banking? Because I mean, with a name like Roth, you're obviously an Episcopalian. So what what got <laughs> you into, into investment banking? All right, so first, since you mentioned the Roth thing, I'm just going to say that wasn't my maiden name, but I did manifest it because my maiden name was Schneiderman, which is 12 letters. And I told all of my friends in high school that I was going to marry someone with a four letter last name. And, you know, there were Levy's, oh, wow. there were Gold's, there were lots of, of choices. You had I, options, you had options. Yeah, but at any rate, um, so <laughs> I actually uh, came from a family where neither of my parents graduated from college. My dad was an electrician, probably the only Jewish electrician that anybody's ever heard of. So, you know, you, you can tell, uh, come from a, a long line of, of sort of exceptions to the rule. And right. I was able to get myself into Wharton undergrad, which is, you know, sort of the best undergraduate business program in the country. Yeah. And my yeah. dad was like, that's nice. Who is paying for that? And my dad was very financially savvy, even though he wasn't um, you know, sort of formally educated in that realm he had a lot of common sense and a lot of sort of financial knowledge and so we ran a, an ROI calculation and said you know if you go to the school there are these these uh, you know kinds of jobs that you can get coming out and you're making a lot of money and that was the the deal it's like okay you can go but you're going to have to pay for most of it and you're right. going to have to pay it off as fast as you can because in my family, debt was, you know, unless we were using it for an investment, debt just for debt's sake is not a good thing. So right. when I got to Wharton, and this is, you know, back in the early 90s, um, you know, I racked up, you know, even though I had some scholarships and I worked through school and I did all this stuff, you know, I came out with $40,000 of college debt by 95. And so I knew listening to my dad that I had to pay it off as quickly as possible. So there's sort of two paths to do that and learn a ton. If for people who really like to deep dive into something, they go into management consulting and people who have ADD and want to do like a million things at once go into investment banking. So clearly I was going to go into investment banking and it, you know, I, it really was to get 
unparalleled experience at a young age and to just create the financial flexibility. But I never went in because, oh, I wanted to be the world's best investment banker. In fact, I'd never even heard of it until I got to college. And so it was clear that that wasn't necessarily going to be where I ended up you know, for my life. A rare person who gets into investment banking for the money. I know it's it's, uh, it's it's an out it's an outlier. But to be fair, this is a story that not a lot of people know. The reason I ended up working at the investment bank that I did um, was because I wanted a free trip to San Francisco, where the bank was located. I had never been. I knew I wasn't okay. going to be able to sort of afford it myself. And in investment banking, if you get past a certain round of interviews, they fly you out. And I actually was competing in a beauty pageant the day of my interview and couldn't make it and had to call up the recruiter and say, I'm sorry, I can't make the investment banking interview. I'm going to be in a beauty pageant, but is there something else that we can possibly do? And he's like, you can't possibly be serious. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm serious. <laughs> and I wanted that free trip so badly. I kept calling him back and calling him back. And I'm like the 17th call. He's like, you are the most persistent mf -er that like I've ever met in my entire life. Fine, you can have the interview. And then I went to the process and you know, I worked my way out to San Francisco. And I'm like, oh, I actually really like this company. <laughs> I ended up working for them, but really had no intention going in. So it's always good to be open to possibilities. But the reason I mentioned that is that even though I went into investment banking for the money, the unusual part is obviously that I missed my first interview because I was in a beauty pageant and couldn't make it. No, that's beautiful. And this explains, incidentally, before we get too far, you also, is that, I see a, do I see a action figure behind you that looks suspiciously like recovering investment banker Carol Roth? You know, funny that you mentioned that. Yes, I do have uh, my own action figure made in my likeness that is made to look like the book cover of the entrepreneur equation. And wow. um, this is one of those things that tends to make people very jealous. And, uh, yeah, that's me. Okay, that's good. So that was for your first book, The Entrepreneur Equation. Yes, yes the first book. Okay, the war on small business, they could have made one where you're like, not happy with what's <laughs> well, the, with the state the of things. The supply chain was all, was all messed up, so they couldn't make one. <laughs> ah, see, well, okay, let's, don't, don't, wait, don't, don't get ahead in the notes. We, so we, we're, no, we're going to talk about that. But okay, so your, your father, he says, listen, Schneiderman Electric, will help you a little bit, but you gotta pay for most of it yourself. You got your debt, you got your free job, yes. uh, or free trip, free trip, went and, and, and helped pay off your debt. Then you got into, so what happened? You get out of investment banking, and then is that when you started getting into small business? Cause I mean, obviously your career is focusing heavily on small business. What got you into that? Was that seamless coming out of investment banking into small business? Not really, actually. The, what kind of tied me into the plight of the small business owner, so to speak. Um, I, you know, I'm sort of an entrepreneurial person at heart. You know, I was the kid who was always selling anything. I, I ran a football uh, pool in college to help pay for college. You know, any, yeah. any way to sort of hustle. So I always had sort of an affinity towards the small business owner. But when I was in investment banking, I would field calls like all day long from small business owners who were getting really bad advice and wanting to hire me or the investment bank to help them and obviously like they couldn't afford the retainer fee let alone you know an overall fee and i always right. felt really badly that i couldn't help them and that the people who were willing to help them probably weren't giving them the best advice 
So when I started transitioning away from investment banking, ultimately, um, you know, I, I said, you know, is there a way to kind of use and leverage a media platform, you know, like others had done in personal finance and, and whatnot, to be able right. to provide better advice to small business owners and to help small business owners in a way where it wasn't, you know, depending on sort of that one-to-one payment. And so right. it really, strangely enough, was from the investment banking experience that you know, brought me into the the plight of the small business owner. And then as I dug more into it and, and really you know tied that into how important they were um, for the economy and economic freedom it was just always been a, an important part of you know who I am and what I do very good so obviously the importance of small business to that business owner or entrepreneur or the people working for them is obvious I mean that that it is yeah. uh, it is how they provide for their families. It is how they build a financial legacy. It's how they sure. find a, a need that isn't being met by the market or isn't being met as well as they could provide it by the, to the market and to provide it. But what is the importance to our overall economy to have a, an environment that has successful small businesses, an ecosystem that encourages or at least allows success of small businesses? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, the things that you were describing, the, the economic freedom, the opportunity to be able to pursue your own path economically is actually really important. And it's why we attract people from all over the world uh, to America to be able to pursue that for all the reasons that you said or for a passion or, or for whatnot. And so that that in and of itself is important. Um, but, you know, if you sort of aggregate it all together, uh, before COVID, small business was about half the GDP and about half the jobs in this country. Uh, so a very big contributor, but in a very decentralized fashion. So even though it's 99.9% of all the small business entities, um, you know, it, it spread over 31.7 million different entities. Most of those are individual businesses. Um, about 6 million of those you know, had the employees and and. Uh, you know, we're, we're the job creators. So, you know, obviously from a, a overall standpoint, it's huge. But then for the ones that have employees or who have contractors or vendors, you know, every time that you do an economic transaction with one of those, whether you're paying them to work for you or you're buying from them or whatnot, you know, obviously that helps them keep their employees in line and or on, on board and gives them money to go out and spend in the local economy. And so it helps to grow the economy. And um, additionally, obviously, innovations and things that help up make our lives better and, and more comfortable. And obviously, every big business that's out there has in, in some way, unless it was a spinoff, uh, been a small business at one point in their lives. Yeah, every, every business started, usually every business started yeah. as, as a small business at some point. So in your book, and this is why I put it here, I just forgot to put it on the other <laughs> one. there it is. Uh, in the war on small business, how government used the pandemic to crush the backbone of America. Uh, when I said that you were my guest tonight, one of the first comments uh, was uh, a from someone named Desiree, one of my followers who uh, or fans who uh, her story uh, I think is going to talk a lot about what, what is going to uh, be a, a brief rundown of what's in your book. 
I was trying, she said, I was trying to open a small boutique bakery a few months ago. Government required that I install a 1000 gallon grease trap in the ground outside, or I couldn't move forward. This was a one person bakery with no fryers, not even a stove, just an oven. It would have cost me about $11,000 plus the cost to have it professionally, professionally cleaned on a schedule. Government is not your friend. Uh, in your book, I assume that this is a very common thing. Why? Tell me about what the, I guess let's start with, what was it that inspired you to, to, to write the book, to, to write this book? So I was approached by HarperCollins very early during the pandemic to do an economic redux of what was you know, sure to be a very historic moment economically. And I really didn't know what the thesis of the book was going to be. I didn't know uh, fully what the outcome was going to be. I had some ideas, but I was actually following real time. And I sort of wrote like three and a half different books during the pandemic, all with slightly different titles that are all somewhat relevant to the, to the final output. Um, but from the very beginning, because of my background um, and knowledge of small business, you know, as soon as they started shutting down small businesses first and looking at the, you know, quote unquote, um, you know, packages of aid that they were going to offer up, it was very clear that that was going to be a key component of the story. It wasn't until I really dug in that I, I saw it was, you know, a big part of the story. And so, you know, as I sorted through all of this information real time, it was very clear that the government was picking winners and losers. They were going to decide who was going to thrive and, and who was going to fight to survive. And they did this not based on data or science, but based on political clout and connections. And guess who doesn't have political clout and connections? Small business. And then, you know, that sort of begot this incredibly epic historic transfer of wealth from Main Street to Wall Street, you know, something that we've just never seen before. And obviously, um, the small businesses of Main Street, as well as individuals, really got the bad end of that trade. And so as I you know, kind of went through this, this thesis, that was the story. It's still probably the most important story that's out there. And strangely, it's not one that enough big media has really covered. Yeah, we're and that's uh, that's uh, uh, curious indeed. Uh, I will say that you know common sense should tell us that if the purpose of these lockdowns is to keep too many people from being around each other, then telling a small bakery or a small uh, you know tanning salon or a small furniture store or a small whatever uh, that you know a small business that might have anywhere from four to maybe. 10 people in there at the same time that you have to shut down because it would be way too unsafe to have all these people here. But Costco and Walmart and Target and Best Buy and all these big box stores that have sometimes hundreds of people in them, especially at a time when there are now curfews introduced so the store can't remain open past this time and, and has to be open, you know, it has to open later and close earlier, which means people are packed together even more. At times it felt like they were recreating the conditions for cold and flu season, that you had to just stay in your poorly ventilated home all day long, venturing outside only to go and do the basic necessities at the exact same place that everyone else is doing it <laughs> during the exact same time 
that everyone else is doing it. This, like you said, this wasn't driven by data or science or even common sense. Was this purely just a, a, a was this just a blatant power grab and money grab for the rich? I mean, it certainly was a blatant power money grab. You know, in terms of the intentions, I've left the book as a choose your own adventure. Um, (laughs) You could decide that it was sort of incompetence driven. You could decide that, you know, it was these small businesses were just too small to matter. And so that the governor government needed to appear as if they were doing something and so small business just becomes like the cannon fodder. Um, or it could be that small businesses are too hard to control. Politically, they're not expedient. So why not just, you know, whatever happens if they, if they die, don't really care. It doesn't matter. They're not helping us in any way. And so, you know, I leave that up to the reader. I lay out the data and facts. Um, the entire book is sourced with hundreds and hundreds of sources, many of them from media outlets um, that are considered, you know, left leaning or mainstream or corporate press or whatnot. And you can right. just make that determination. But here's the thing is it, it really doesn't matter what the intentions are. People often get very hung up on intentions. The outcomes are always what matters. And regardless of which path you choose, the outcome is the same. And the consolidation of power, this, this, these central planners and the consolidation between big government, big business, and big special interests never works out well for the little guy, whether that be you know the average individual or small business or whatnot. So you know, I kind of don't even care what the intention is. Right. I just care about the outcomes. Yeah, I'm reminded whenever we talk about, you know, debate or or discuss whether it's a case of anything is a case of government being inept or evil or some combination between them. I'm reminded of the the uh, the scene from Casino where uh, um, uh, in fact, uh, his name was Roth, I think, uh, where he uh, the uh, the casino. (laughs) Hyman Roth. Hyman Roth. Yes. Yes. Uncle Jaime. Old Uncle Jaime uh, yes, goes right. to uh, goes to the casino, and he's hired one of the corrupt government officials' uh, stepson or something like that, and the or son-in-law, and the guy's an idiot. And uh, he's sitting there and watching one jackpot after the next on the slots, and they're losing a fortune. And he fires him on the spot, and uh, the you know his assistant says, "Well, you know, he said that it was a mistake. You know, how do you know that he was in on it?" He said, "I don't care if he's in on it. If either he's in on it or he's an idiot. Either way, he's gone." And it's the same thing. Here, government's either it's probably some combination of ineptitude and, and, and evil, but it really doesn't it, it doesn't matter. I, I will say I think that the the motivation largely has to do with the coincidental fact that they get you know hundreds of millions of dollars to their campaign coffers from the people that were allowed to stay open, and they don't get that from the people who were shut down. Um, now, so. Your latest book, you highlight, you say that the, you say the number one risk for starting or running a small business in America today is the government at all levels. Um, what do you mean? So when you say, do you, you say the number one risk, there's no higher risk. I, I know that, uh, and, and this stat, you can tell me if this stat's true or not, but I remember hearing when I started my small business that 
uh, 90% of small businesses fail in the first year or two or something like that. Is that, is that even accurate? I've heard that so many times. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of debates, um, amongst the the statistics. I would say it's probably more like 90% fail within a five to 10 year period. Um, but the majority do fail within five years. So it's, it's very, very difficult to succeed as a small business. And there's a lot of, of kind of failure to succeed of businesses that stay open, but don't really, um, you know, kind of earn what you might think of when you think of a, you know, business success. So it's, it's a very, very challenging situation. Um, a lot of risk. Most of these small business owners are risking their own capital. They're putting in their time. They're putting in their, their soul into this business. And when I wrote my first book, I talked about all of these other risks in terms of, you know, employees and trying to find customers and, and risk reward. And then, you know, 18, 19 months ago, we get to the point in the United States of America where the government said, no, I'm sorry, you can't open your business. We're going to take your business for the quote unquote good of society something that, you know, should have been eminent domain if they were going to enact it and were not properly compensated. So like the complete subjugation of your property rights is a huge, huge risk that now all of a sudden is standing there that really never kind of entered into anybody's brains before 19 months ago. Well, and that's the incredible thing about it is if you had told, if I had, if someone had gone back in time and told me this time, two years ago, or any of us, right. the, the government is going to use a disease that has a roughly 1% fatality rate, give or take, something that is more serious than the flu, but not right. exponentially more so. Uh, and they're going to use this as a pretext to shut down almost every business and, and pretty much all of the small businesses in this country. Then they're going to uh, hand us a few hundred dollars uh, every few months of our own money. Uh, and at the same time, in those same bills, they're going to hand off trillions of dollars to big businesses, multinational, uh, multi-billion dollar corporations, and themselves, big government agencies. Um, and then they're going to uh, have a, uh, a uh, uh, employee protection loan program that is largely going to go to big businesses and their franchises. Um, And there's going to be this massive exodus of small business owners. uh, And then, you know, not to mention all the stuff that's happened since then. And they're going to run up 10, you know, well over 10 trillion, they're going to spend well over $10 trillion, run up seven, $7 trillion of debt inside of two years, all of this uh, for this virus, I would have said, i Wish I didn't believe you, but I think that might be possible. But I, I wouldn't think that it would be accepted as easily as it was. This was fear, right? They used fear to just scare us into destroying our own livelihood. Yeah, I mean, it was actually, it, it's funny that you say that. I've had, I had this discussion in February 2020 with my husband. As we kind of heard what was going on in China, it was pretty clear yeah. that the virus was going to, you know, be go, going into other places. And we said, okay, it's going to come here. Like, let's say it's bad. Like, what would you do? Like, do you think that they could like just shut everyone down for two weeks? If it's a two week incubation period, do you think we could shut everyone down for two weeks? And after like this lively debate, we're both like, no, there's just no way that you could do it. The clever thing that they did, and again, I don't know if, you know, how much of it was intentionally clever or just kind of the way that it falls out of the system is that we didn't have lockdowns or shutdowns. I mean, not everybody was locked down. It was just 
certain people that were horribly deemed non-essential by the yep. government, like the like government can give you the essential or non-essential label. And yep. so the people with the clout and the connections and who were in the club didn't feel the pain. Um, they actually did quite well. I mean, if they had shut down Walmart and Target and Amazon's warehouse and your local grocery store, if the Federal Reserve hadn't intervened to prop up the stock market and everything was spiraling down, I think it's safe to say that this wouldn't have lasted like yeah. two or three weeks. I think there would have been yeah. a huge outcry and we would have been done with. But because the most vulnerable part of society was the one that was the sacrificial lamb, as it always as always is the case, um, and everybody else was kind of left to go about their business and in many cases benefit from it, that's how they were able to get away with it. And then the, the messaging to sort of the average layperson, the media did a horrible job per usual of holding anyone accountable. They just went with whatever the story was and ran cover for these you know, horrible infringements on rights and the ridiculous policies. And so that then created amongst certain people, this culture of fear and irrationality and the fact that we were already polarized and the government had already tricked us into pointing the figures at each other instead of back at the government um, just sort of exacerbated the whole situation. So I keep seeing uh, in the comments a reference to the NFIB, the natural or NF. Yeah. And oh, National Federation yeah. of yeah, and a National Federation of Independent Business, and none of it is positive. So I, I, do you have any take on the NFIB? They're basically saying it's supposed to be a small business uh, lobby, but they're completely ineffectual. They don't really lobby for small businesses. Do you have a, a take on them? I, I've heard of them, but I don't know much about yeah, it. Yeah, I, mean, I cite them in the book. I mean, NFIB, I think, it, first of all, there isn't any group that does a, an effective job in lobbying for small businesses. Let's just, let's just put that out there. There just isn't one. So we'll, we'll, let's put that aside. NFIB um, is, I've always used as sort of a source of statistics. At small, they do the Small Business Optimism Index, and they're sort of more of an organization that kind of follows the pulse of what's going on with small business rather than being sort of a lobbying group on behalf of small business. So I think that they've been very effective in terms of you know that aspect but again, you know, there is no, because there's, you know, that's the whole point of small business. Small business is decentralized. Like that's the great part about it. It allows right. economic freedom for anyone and everyone, but because it's decentralized, it's decentralized. And so it's over different geographies. It's over different industries. It's over different size ranges. People are in business for different reasons. So it's very difficult to get a group of those together in agreement on things and then have enough money to like, you know, kind of compete with these big businesses. And unfortunately, because the federal government is, you know, so large and it has sort of overtaken everything, um, you know, under its purview, it, it, it creates a really bad situation for small business. And, and even like at the, the local level, like the U.S. Chamber, where a lot of people's local chambers do a really good job for them on a national level, like I get their newsletters and sometimes I'm like, want to put my head through the screen about some of the things that they're supporting. So it's right. clear, you know, on a national level, even the groups that are supposed to be the small business champions, whether it's the, the SBA 
who put out loans and did so on a discriminatory basis to women and minority-owned businesses got caught discriminating. And so they then said, okay, well, we're going to pull the funding from them and do it in a different way instead of going back to get enough funding for everyone. You know, those are the kinds of things that you're up against. The, 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 right. the minimum passable, hey, we did something is what's been happening for small business, which again is unfortunate given the fact that it's half the economy, but 99.9% of all the energy. That's so and this is the problem with the political process is that it's more about the theater of the thing than actual value. If I as a politician or as a, a political party or as a even a political body like a, like Congress or the, the White House or uh, a state legislature or the governor can say, look at everything we've done and sort of, right. you know, you know, uh, 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 dazzle you with a bunch of things that were done without actually demonstrating any of them were effective, then it can sort of, uh, I guess, again, dazzle people into saying, okay, I guess they're doing their best. They're doing, you know, yes, things are bad, but they're doing their best. They're trying their best. The ah. interesting thing about, this is the interesting thing about government or at least big government. Um, the coercive and centrally planned nature of it means that you either have to choose between using your business as a means of consolidating power, which means you're using the political process more than actually feeding the market. But it means the other it means it the other way too. If your primary purpose is to feed the need of the market and to, to prosper as a result of that, you're far less uh, well footed and well suited to consolidate power and try to work towards the political process. So it's almost like it's a mutually, it's not necessarily mutually exclusive, but there's certainly two different, uh, there's very little overlap between that. So the more a business wants to grow into this mega business, the less and less it's actually serving the needs of the market. And the more and more it's consolidating its power to make sure it gets fed when no one else does. Uh, and yeah. sometimes by actually, you know, doing a Malthusian thing of, of reducing what everyone's getting just to make sure I'm the only one eating, which is basically what we've seen in the last year and a half. Yeah, no, it's very well said. And, and I always tell people, you know, when I think about like concepts like free enterprise or capitalism and central planning, I kind of look at a spectrum and I'm looking at you know, one half of the economy that's you know standing for freedom and choice and transparency with those guardrails, property rights, um, you know, to some extent, obviously, those were kind of thrown out the window uh, over the last 19 months. And then, you know, as you move along the spectrum, you have a handful of people using force, coercion, control, and usually a lot of opacity, you know, making decisions on behalf of everyone. And you're right that, the, you know, as government has gotten bigger, the half of the economy that is large needs to be in sort of cahoots <laughs> with the big government in order to uh, be useful and to get the things that unfortunately tend to make them um, and the market less competitive. And so it, it does become this self-fulfilling cycle. And it's moved us away from free enterprise and capitalism towards the central planning. And that's why like, the best thing we can do if we, if we really shrunk the size of the government and took them out of, you know, kind of all of these different things that they've stuck their noses in and their hands in, then these big businesses would be spending their time doing those things. And like you said, they would be competing on a fairer playing field and actually servicing the market better. 
Right, exactly. This is not a free market. (laughs) There are are people acting in as free of a market as they can. The closest thing to a free market we have are small and medium-sized businesses trying to feed the needs. But even they, again, you know, the the example that Desiree gave, even they are having to deal with the minefield of regulatory burden that that they have to face uh, in order to do that. But certainly from a big business standpoint, we do not have a free market. We have an oligarchical system that is fed from the top down. Um, You, we, now you mentioned, you know, that small businesses make up half of the, roughly half of the economy. But we also did see what you often refer to as the largest wealth transfer in history from Main Street to Wall Street. Yeah. Are they still half of the economy now? Or, I mean, do, are, do we have solid numbers on just how much the shift from small business to big business happened in this last year and a half? So it, 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 this all goes back to measurements. And then it also goes back to like how we come up with statistics in the time frame. So right. what happened, which is somewhat strange, but also somewhat predictable, given all of the decisions that were made by central planners um, you know, over the last year and a half or so, is that a lot of people actually started side hustle businesses. So if you had left the workforce and you were getting unemployment or an enhanced unemployment benefit, maybe some stimulus, you're like, well, I'm not doing anything. So I'm going to, you know, sell potholders on Etsy or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Right. So right, the, right. the net amount. So even though we know that at a minimum hundreds of thousands, and I think the numbers in the low 1 million to 2 million mark, at least that many businesses were murdered during this time period on a net basis so far, we're actually showing growth in the number of businesses because all these people kind of took on these side hustles during the process. So of course the narrative is going to be like, Oh, look, we've actually spurred business creation, ignoring the fact that, you know, you had millions of of small businesses that were murdered. Um, And then I think that, you know, the next probably 18 months is going to be important to see how it shakes out because there are so many small businesses that were just kind of hanging on by a thread. And in many cases, you know, they had personal debt in order to um, affect the business before COVID even came along. And to see sort of the the long tail effects of not only the direct mandates, but all the the kind of longer tail issues like the shortage of labor and the supply chain or whatnot. I don't think we'll have a really good picture of what this all looks like for probably another year and a half. But we know that for many, it was a bloodbath um, and, uh, you know, millions and millions either survive or just just hanging on by a threat. I know anecdotally, I had many friends who had, you know, and loved ones who had spent years building up their small business only to lose it over the course of a few weeks. And yeah. just there, and there was nothing they could do about it, uh, especially in the opening months of the pandemic. But even the ones that were able to hang on and they thought there's no way this is going to last past, uh, you know, at past the summer. And they were in a state where it did. And then they finally had to had to wrap things up by the end of the year. I've even had a few that were able to hold out all through last year. And then, with you know, when, when things started ramping back up this year, that was that was their, uh, you know, their their point where they couldn't hold on anymore. Um, and, uh, and some of them, it's because of the labor shortage. Now, at the same time, as you said, I know other people who always had worked for someone else. And now they have a bunch of side hustles, they got involved in the gig economy, they're doing stuff on Etsy, uh, a couple of them started started their own Patreon and are doing stuff there. You know, there's all sorts of different uh, things that have happened, which is, is that why we're seeing this push for uh, the IRS to have more 
uh, uh, view of you know your your bank account and your and and you know requiring Venmo and uh, Cash App and all these other things to disclose uh, all of your transaction information is that are they seeing that there's this new rise of entrepreneurs and making sure they got to get their hooks in as soon as it happens? Oh, you mean so you don't think that it's actually because they're going after the billionaires? As Janet Yellen goes, oh, we're we're trying you to have catch to... the billionaire tax cheats. They're looking at no, people listen. who have six hundred dollars in their bank. <laughs> listen, listen. If you how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, okay? If you want to go after billionaires, you got to get them for those six hundred and fifty dollar transactions, or you're never going to find them, Carol. So obviously, this is about billionaires. Is it possible, even though the main focus of this is clearly to go after billionaires, is there it is. possible that this might negatively affect small businesses too? Yeah. Okay. So let let's just walk back to the American Rescue Plan because, like, this actually got kind of got lost in the shuffle. So this yeah. is. Kind of like the war on this on small business. This is the war on the middle class, and, and it's all tied together. It all goes back yep. to like either you're really wealthy and powerfully powerfully connected, and you're inside the club, or you're really poor, and we're going to buy you off. But like if you're in the middle, like we got to find like something to do with you. So in the American Rescue Plan, the you know almost two trillion dollar like idiot plan that came out in March after, you know, the vaccines had been rolled out, after things had been stabilized, people's personal saving rate had been, you know, as high as it's been, like, since World War II. Um, right. You know, they pushed through the stimulus, but of course, it's never just stimulus. There's always these, like, weird things that are buried in these bills that most people don't pay attention to. So buried into that particular bill, which goes into effect, the reason I think people haven't talked about it because it hasn't gone into effect yet, it goes into effect um, January 1st of 2022, is that if you are selling on Etsy or eBay or all these these places, it used to be that they would issue a 10K there's uh, I mean, take a 1099. I've got my financial head out. A 1099 to you um, <laughs> it, it, for tax reporting purposes. Uh, right. If you had done about twenty thousand dollars worth of transactions or about two hundred transactions during the year, saying like we know you're not a hobbyist. This like you're you're doing this on an ongoing basis. You're a business, right. so right. you know you should be reporting this. This has now been shifted. To if you make six hundred dollars is the magic number. If you make six hundred dollars, you are now going to get this reported to the government. So if you're like a hobbyist, you know who maybe sells some, a few sneakers, or you've got you know your Tupperware collection from the eighties, and you throw it up, but like you are now, if you over the course of the year it aggregates at least six hundred dollars, like you will be getting that ten ninety nine k report sent to the IRS and sent to you. So you better report that stuff. So, so that's the first piece of it. So again, this is not about the big guys. This is about going after hobbyists, moms, you know, the gig economy, all these kinds of things. And then that second piece of it um, is, is really looking into your bank accounts. And just to be clear, because there's been a lot of confusion about this, what they're proposing right. and who knows what's going to end up happening, if anything, is they're right. saying if you have any account that has $600 in it, we are going to ask for your aggregate inflows and outflows. So they're not looking at every transaction individually reported. They're looking at the aggregate. So if you buy a whole bunch of stuff, 
you, that's one number. And, you know, if you get paid a whole bunch of stuff, like that's another, those two numbers are coming in for every single account. Or if you have a transaction that's more than $600 that flows through the account, they're also going to get a report. So either of those can be a trigger. Um, and again, this is not about going after the 600 and something billionaires in the United States. As many of my followers have pointed out to me, there's a reason they're also trying to hire 87,000 IRS agents. And again, it's not to go after it's 600 billionaires. So they are coming after you. I mean, people are like, oh, you're being hysterical. I'm like, I'm not being hysterical. Like, people need to know what is happening. And this is not going to plug any gap. They just want to be in control. And I think they want the data to move towards this digital currency, to ultimately move towards a social currency system where at some point in time, because you know it worked the last time they decided they were going to be tyrannical and tell you what to do. But in the future, oh, I'm sorry, like you've eaten three steaks this month. The, the limit is two for you know climate change. So we're going to you know cut it off. We see this in your transactions. I'm sorry, you can't eat that steak. I mean, I know, I know it sounds dystopian and ridiculous, but does it really after you know the last year and a half? I don't think so. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, any anyone who's going, they'd never do that. What would you have said in 2019 if we told you right. all the stuff that happened in the last year and a half right. was going to happen? You would have said, there's no way, not at least not for quite some time. It's, they're going to do it in a couple months. And right. by the time it shows up, half the country is going to be, well, a sizable minority of the country is going to be cheering it on and demanding even more because they're scared. And that's well, what I they have, do. They I have fear. people now who've already said, oh, well, why do you care if you're not cheating? Why do you care if they have that information? I mean, th there are people with this mindset already kind of yeah. fostering that narrative. And that's going to be the narrative. If, if you're playing on the straight and narrow, why do you care? We're just trying to catch the cheater. Sure you are. Sure, that's what this yeah. is all about. Like We're employing somebody for like a hundred and something thousand dollars a year because like somebody on eBay like misreported $15. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and the government never ropes anyone up on things they didn't do. I mean, that's that's no. why we don't have to have a Fifth Amendment or Fourth Amendment protections right. or, you know, attorneys in court. They just, all they just want to find the truth. They're certainly not going to, you know, and, incorrectly accuse anyone of anything. No, the, and, no, and you know, you're six, I always six, like they, they never weaponize the IRS either. They've never done no. that. So it's not like they would do Political that. Political use of the no, IRS? Never. First never. of all, how you, dare you suggest that anyone even thinks that? I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, $600 transaction, it's not as though back in December uh, almost everyone got $600. Like, it's so no. blatant what they're doing. Anyway, so uh, the here you know we can talk about for there i have many followers who may not own a small business may not work for a small business may not realize how it's affecting them uh but what is you know for example uh the uh we were talking about this this thing with the supply chain what's happening right now there are all these ships that are out to sea and we're now going to play a game uh usually it's similar to six degrees of kevin bacon 
this is going to be, I guess, six degrees of small business. You're going to explain how this, because I, I, I almost jokingly said, well, you know, it's not like that had anything to do with small business. And you're like, actually, actually it does. So it, so explain how what's going on with small business is affecting this backlog of ships that we're seeing where, you know, the supply chains being so destroyed that, you know, there's, there's like literally hundreds of ships waiting at shore to be able to deliver their goods to the U.S. Yeah, I mean, so this goes back to the central planners deciding that they were going to shut down like a third of the economy and that they could just turn it back on whenever they wanted as if they were power cycling a modem, right? So it kept a ton of people and it still kept a ton of people out of the workforce. I mean, we're at the point now, um, the JOLT report just came out this week, 10.4 million job openings. So when you don't have people who are able to work, um, things happen in terms of the supply chain on every single level. It it affects the trucking supply. Uh, A lot of people who were truckers decided they were going to either, you know, change jobs or go work for Amazon because there wasn't as much of a demand for things like oil during the pandemic because people had to stay home. And then, you know, now it's, it's hard to get those people back because they've transitioned. And it's not like you can just pull somebody off the street and say, hey, you know, do you want to drive an oil truck? Uh, <laughs> go ahead and, and, and get in there. And so, you know, that level of disruption in terms of moving goods from one place to another is as a direct result of the decision. It's also then affecting supply and demand because they put a ton of money into people's hands um, through stimulus, through the unemployment bonuses. And so all of that money, plus all the money that the Let's not let's not just gloss over the trillions of dollars that the Fed printed and put into the market. And so all right. of that market is now chasing fewer goods because, uh, you know, if you've got fewer people working, obviously they cannot produce at the same level that they would have produced before. And so the prices of everything uh, ultimately goes up because they have to pay labor more if they can get it and because of you know basic supply and demand so everything that you're seeing with the small businesses the plight of the small businesses the the shortage of the workers uh, the inability to get certain kinds of goods and services the increase in prices you know this is all just a couple steps up the food chain from that you know set of decisions from the central planners because of course they think they know better than the markets and the frustrating part for me in all of this is you know you hear Jerome Powell, um, head of the Federal Reserve, come out. You, yep. you hear Janet Yellen. You hear these people come out and go, "Oh, well, we never anticipated that this would be the outcome." Whether it was, you know, they've been off on inflation by a factor of at least three at this point. The supply chains, you know, I've been doing economic commentary this entire time. Like I talked <laughs> about it from day one. I have a lot yeah. of other people, Mitch Rochelle, and yeah, I can name like you know ten other people. We've been talking about this from day. Like we all knew this. <laughs> How did you not know this? And you're in charge of making these decisions. So again, either they're incompetent or they're just lying. And in that particular case, I'm not going to let you choose your own adventure. They're lying. There's no yeah. way that these people did not know. 
Although the thing is, I mean, you're a very smart lady. You are the uh, expert. You are the small business queen. Uh, you're also the heir to the Schneiderman Electric Fortune. Like, I mean, it's possible that you just had the keys to this and you knew when they didn't. So, but no, I, I, I agree. I, I think that this well, is... I would just like to say my father would have been was so happy that you actually made him the small business owner because he just worked for somebody else's electric company. Like, he, he wasn't that far up the food chain. So there was no I, Schneiderman Electric, unfortunately. I am creating the mythos of Schneiderman Electric, okay? And that's just, it is what it is. On this show, there was a Schneiderman Electric, okay? Everywhere else you can say that. This show, Schneiderman Electric. No, um, so it's incredible watching this because like you said, these are supposed to be the the geniuses running the economy, right? And and this is what we talk about in Libertarian. Are you a Libertarian? So my platform, as I I think I've mentioned to you offline, is I stand for small business, small government, and big hair. Big hair. So, yeah. So basically, you know, it's, I always say I'm like libertarian adjacent or libertarian-ish, individual rights-ish. I'm never comfortable joining a group. It's just a personal thing. Um, But I would, but I I voted for you. By the way, that's the most libertarian answer to that. I don't join things. I'm just doing my own thing. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So I did vote for you and Joe. Um, actually, you. voted Libertarian in the last two elections. So it's not that I I am or I'm not. I'm, I'm hanging around the edges. Let's just say it that way. You haven't claimed me yet, folks. You haven't claimed me yet. But I'm, I'm hanging around the edges. I say, are you a Libertarian? She says, well, you know, I mean, I vote Libertarian <laughs> and have been for several years now. But I don't want to be grouped in with anything. I don't do groups. The most libertarian. Yeah. By the way, if you want to start a libertarian big hair caucus, I'm the guy that started the Waffle House caucus. It started as a joke. We're now gonna we're on pace to be the largest caucus in the party very soon. So if you need help, I can help you with that. But so, um, so for for those that believe in free markets, we can put it that way. For those who believe in free markets, we recognize that the problem with these centrally planned economies is that even if you put the smartest people in charge of it ever, they can never understand all the market inputs happening at the at the micro level, at the local level that they need to know to be able to make big decisions. It's not even possible to make a big decision Correct. that can equitably and fairly affect everyone. It's best to, to leave that money and that power as decentralized as possible. And Correct. of course, those types of positions don't attract the smartest and most ethical people. They attract sociopaths and liars and idiots and morons and people that are literally sundowning and going senile in front of us on TV while they run the country. Like They attract the worst, absolute worst people. And even if they were great people, it still wouldn't work as well as just giving people the freedom to be able to do things themselves. Now, this... Wait, can I, can I just add into that for a second? I no, was having please, a conversation please. with someone earlier today. It's like, imagine that you had like a blind resume and you, you said you want each member of you know, Congress and all these quote unquote important people in leadership right. positions, leadership positions of government to put their resume like, like what they know like what their background is, maybe some transcripts of things that they've said and done. And you just left the name off. You left the party off. It was blind. And you said, you put this in front of people. You said, we're going to put these people in charge of running $8 trillion plus before COVID on all different levels, you know, purview that extends into like every aspect of your life from healthcare to school to whatnot. Like, 
what do you think of this group of people? You'll be like, are you kidding me? Like you, those are the people that you have in charge. I mean, that's what the system that we have in place. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, it's just such a, like you don't have that, those professional smartest people, which like you said, still wouldn't be able to do it. And they have all of those things underneath them. I mean, it is like the worst of all outcomes. And the fact that more people can't see that sort of very obvious and clear situation is pretty mind boggling. Yeah, I remember as a kid hearing the um, Will Rogers, I think it was Will Rogers quote that we do better. Maybe it was H.L. Mencken. It was someone who said, basically, we do better to just randomly pick people in the phone book. Phone book, right, yes. I was like, you know, I laughed and I'm like, but that's not really true. It's it, no, it, it's true. It's 100% because true. This attracts bad people. Like this much power attracts idiots, monsters and idiots that are used sociopaths. by monsters. The, the useful idiots. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. sociopaths and they're useful idiots. And that's that's the problem we have here. Now, here here is a question I have about um what I think might be coming up and you can tell me if I'm, if I'm, if I, and my, my fan Ken, who, who put this up, if, if we're maybe uh, uh, getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, I, he said, Ken said, I'm a wildland fire contractor new to the business side of it. Uh, I bought a fire engine and got it outfitted, ready to go for next year. Uh, it looks like I will not be able to uh, be a responder um, to be able to respond due to the mandatory vaccination order for all federal government employees, contractors, and subcontractors. So one less engine to fight wildfires. Now, putting aside the absurdity of that, I can't help but feel, again, I'm a libertarian. I, 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 I unfortunately, my predictions, the more cynical they are, it just takes slightly longer for them to come true. It's not yes. really that they, that they ever don't happen. It just might take longer. I feel like the next big thing that they're going to hammer small businesses with is, you know, this vaccine mandate right now, which hasn't even actually been filed, is being focused on big businesses. But yes. it feels like that's not going to last. It feels like the next big thing they're going to slam these small businesses with is is vaccine mandates or something related to the vaccines am i am i off here so i mean anything that they sort of trial run with a big business that they exempt the small business for um, if it endures and i think that's the question is you know will this mandate actually hold up or you know does this virus cycle out naturally by the time it gets through the courts and the whole thing becomes moot but yeah it always cycles down to small business um right. and you know usually they'll find a way for the big guys to come up with some exemption or workaround so the fact that they even like you started in that way makes my spidey sense or back in the day the schneidy sense um tingle a little bit and say yeah, like what? what's the problem? But regardless of what it is, it still will impact small business. So even let's say, let's say the nurses, the firefighters, the flight attendants, the pilots, you know, so on and so forth, decide I'm going to sit on the sideline and wait this out. Yep. It's not like they're probably going to go join your local small business. They're probably not waiting tables or cutting hair or doing those things in the interim. All it does is drag on the economy. And as we talked about before, that creates this sort of additional vicious cycle, keeps more people out, increases inflation. And you know, all of those things end up 
having the, the biggest impact on the small business because the small business doesn't have the access to capital to be able to weather the storm. They don't have the ability to invest in technology to maybe make replacements for some of the, the labor. Um, so like all of the things that even if they don't directly come at the small business, it always ends up hurting them. I mean, the perfect example coming out of the Great Recession was the Dodd-Frank legislation. So, you know, you had in the Great Recession situation, uh, a lot of financial institutions, they took on too much risk. They were deemed too big to fail and, you know, got a bunch of taxpayer money um, yeah. instead of a slap on, <laughs> instead of a, a slap on the wrist, they got a bunch of taxpayer money. Exactly. And then their supposed the slap on the wrist was we're going to legislate you, which is always a huge gift to big business instead of small yeah. business. Yeah. Yeah. And so when Dodd Frank came out and the statistics are in the book and I, I'll, I'll give you like kind of macro, but you can get the actual numbers in there. Cause I can't, they always get jumbled in my head, but basically it was something like, you know, within the, the years afterwards, the formation of new small business banks um, went from like an average of a hundred a year to like three and it killed a bunch of small business and community banks. And then I know this is gonna be super surprising to you and probably everyone watching, but which banks do you think lend to small businesses, small banks or big banks? <laughs> it's the small right. banks. So small business lending like took a huge nosedive while lending to big businesses increase. So something that was meant to rein in these big financial institutions actually gave them free reign and less competition and ended up killing off small business. And that, that's the cycle that happens every single time. So that's why I'm always you know, skeptical of, oh, well, we're going to do this thing and it's only going to be you know, for these big guys. You know, it, it's that same thing. Once you concede the principle, you concede the principle. It's why they, they're talking about taxing the rich to the billionaires, but then we're talking about the $600 accounts. It's like every single time, it just always comes back to the people who don't have the political clout and connections. Yeah, it, it is the foxes saying, you know, the problem is that the hens aren't being regulated enough and right. it always just so happens to help the foxes. And, and it's one of the things that, you know, going back to what you were talking about with the supply chain, how something that they did that hurt small businesses worked its way, I guess, up the food chain to the global shipping logistics system yeah. and, and the supply chain into the U.S., for you and me and anyone with common sense or anyone who isn't, you know, in on it, uh, the uh, in on the scam, you know, this would lend itself to the fact that central planning is a bad way to plan an economy. But for the pe for people who it is essential to centrally plan the economy for them to continue their grift, this really just lends itself to more automation that they don't have to reply on uh, rely on labor uh, because they'll have you know more and more robots and machines doing it. This at least initially, also hurts small businesses more because the benefit of, of automation is that you have that initial high upfront cost of purchasing yeah. and retrofitting, but then ongoing, you save a bunch of money on an right. economy of scale. But for a small business that can't afford a robot, now they're screwed. And especially when the you know uh, everything from minimum wage to every labor regulation, health regulation, environmental regulation, uh, occupants uh, or, or safety regulation, everything else uh, keeps hitting them. Is, is that not another, is, is automation potentially another, the next thing that's going to hit small businesses hard as well? 
I mean, it, it's, it's huge. And there's a reason why if you look down at the breakdown of the 31.7 million small businesses, 6 million of them have employees, but the rest are solopreneurs. They rely on contractors and, and the like. And the right. reason is, is that it's so difficult and costly to hire that first employee. And it's because of the government. I mean, the government's inflation of everything is something that we don't spend any time talking about, yeah. uh, whether it's the costs that have been added to your house or the cost of opening a business or the cost of keeping people out of the labor force. And because of the rising minimum wages, because of the additional benefits that you have to have, you know, things like insurance. And in my business, you know, I have somebody who works from home on a computer who works for me, and I have to have um, workers' compensation insurance in Illinois. The cost, I mean, it's like not funny, but it's like ridiculous, like thousands of yeah. dollars that could be going you know, to my employee, but no, has to go to like some government crony. And on the Illinois website, they actually brag about the fact that they have like the most workers' compensation insurance underwriters out of any state. And I'm like, they make that's them. not a yeah. good thing. <laughs> like, that's, that's horrible. But people yeah. are like, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's amazing. Um, so, yeah, so like, it's like all of those things um, end up being an issue. And yeah, like from an automation standpoint, as I said, if you don't have access to capital, whether your business model could afford it or not, if you don't have the access to capital um, either way it doesn't matter you're not going to be able to figure out and automate it and it, obviously it's just harder for that small business and the other thing that small businesses are going to have to contend with probably before automation is i don't know how familiar you are with the pro act um, that's making its way through Congress, but this is the anti-gig worker legislation yep. that oh, was yeah. sort of yeah. like started in California under AB5 and then has been adopted on a national basis that's basically trying to destroy gig work. So that's 59 million jobs that are either solopreneurs or contractors that are used by small businesses who either may not need somebody full-time or is like, right. hey, you know, I can't afford all the costs of bringing on an employee, but I can pay you X and maybe you get a bunch of other uh, clients and, and you figure out your own health insurance and other benefits and whatnot. And so they're really, uh, for people who, who like to talk about your choice, um, your labor, your choice is completely being threatened by all of this big government. Obviously, we're seeing that with the vaccine mandate, but then, you know, you'll be seeing it with PROAC, which, by the way, has already passed, um, I think it's the House and is now sitting in the Senate, which is really scary. Yeah, all of these things boil down to one person saying, hey, I'd like to provide this service to someone for or good or, or service to someone for a certain amount of money. If only I could find someone who could give me money. And then someone else goes, hey, that's what a coincidence. I have some money and I'd really like that good or service. And the government goes, no, 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 no. This needs me involved. I need to get involved in this. Something's wrong here. I, this looks fishy. Now, you're, you're complaining that they make you get uh, workers' compensation insurance. But, I mean, thankfully, I mean, just be happy they didn't make you install a thousand-gallon grease trap. Okay? I mean, that, like I mean, that. like, think about that. So I don't know what kind of bakery Desiree was thinking about uh, opening. Um, it sounds like maybe cookies or cakes, which seems super dangerous. So I'm really glad that the government has saved us from those delicious, cookie, delicious cookies and cakes. But, you know, it, it's so it's it's an ongoing issue. I mean, even people who just want to braid hair for a living, like the people yes. who do something that every 
mom and dad does to their kid before they send them off to school. And then you have to go out and spend thousands of dollars to get a license and then like get retrained. Most of the training has nothing to do with it. I mean, it's just Uh a blatant cash grab. And again, the people that these are, these rules are uh, impacting, you know, Desiree, a woman entrepreneur who wants to make that leap, you know, the hair braiding, obviously in a lot of urban and underserved communities, like how are you helping the vulnerable? They're not, they want those people to become dependent on the government and just be part of this power grab. And it's super blatant. And, uh, you know, I wish it just, we could get more people to see it. Yeah, government breaks your legs. This is a, a quote I use almost every day from Harry Brown, who, in my opinion, is the best. Uh, with all due respect to all of the other presidential candidates the Libertarian Party's ever had, uh, he is, in fact, he I believe is the best one we, have, we ever had. Joe Jorgensen was actually his running mate in 1996. She was his spike. Yeah, she was his spike. Um, but she, but he said Harry Brown used to say, "Government's good at one thing. Uh, it breaks someone's legs, takes their wallet." uses some of the money to buy them some crutches and says, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have those crutches. And that's what we see over and over again. The leg breaking in this case is all the regulatory burdens that they put on entrepreneurs, small businesses, anyone trying to get ahead who doesn't want to have to work for someone else, who doesn't want to have to live on assistance. All of these burdens are basically a regressive barrier. So the less money and capital you are already born with, the less able you are to climb that barrier and the more relegated you are to either just working for someone else. If you're fortunate enough to even find a job, uh, or uh, having to, you know, uh, 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 live off of assistance, or working in something illegal and now risking jail time and criminalization and all the terrible things that come from that. And it's it's a it's an outer nightmare. The the last thing I, I want to talk to you. Go, go ahead. If I could just interject because it, it reminds me of the PPP because a lot of people yes it's the same kind of thing where they were like. Oh, but government, they gave PPP. And I kept saying, uh, you know, not know. I'm familiar with Harry Brown. I think I quoted him in the book. I'm not sure if it was the final draft or a previous draft, but I definitely was kind of following his stuff. Um, but in a, a similar vein, it was like basically the government was like arse, an arsonist that like burned down yep. your house and then yep, started yep, yep. a GoFundMe and went like, aren't you glad? <laughs> that I set up a GoFundMe and raised a few bucks for you. I mean, it, it's yep. like, it's just so insane. And I don't think people understand that PPP was a fraction of the overall money that was spent not just in CARES, but in all of the relief packages, and that it didn't even come close to compensating people for the subjugation of their property rights. So, you know, it's it's that, that well, well, we threw a little bit of, of money at it. You should be thankful. Look at the yeah. great things that I did. Of your money that I stole from you after <laughs> right. I hobbled you. What a great thing I've done. What a fantastic thing. Clearly, we need more of me and what I do. Um, Since I am a libertarian and am contractually obligated to mention the Federal Reserve anytime I have a conversation that is longer than 15 minutes long, can we talk about the Federal Reserve very briefly? So for a little bit of background... Uh, since the Federal Reserve was created, ironically enough, on the same year that the uh, IRS was created, uh, but uh, in 1913 it was created, and in the uh, 108 years that it has existed, the U.S. dollar has lost 98 cents on its value. In other words, imagine if your money was worth 50 times what it is right now in today's dollars. That's how much you have been robbed by the Federal Reserve. Can you talk specifically a little bit about how the Federal Reserve has harmed entrepreneurs and small businesses? Absolutely. And I I did devote an entire chapter. Chapter five of the book is all about the Federal Reserve. But you're not a libertarian. 
tried to use very clear language for people who you know, aren't economic wonks and like you know, try to sesame right. street it because it is super complicated intentionally yes. um yeah i'm also not a libertarian but i did happen to quote murray rothbard a few times as well just just put it out there if but only I, there was a term to describe your your belief system <laughs> when it comes to economics um but in terms of like i just want to put it in context of what's happened over the last year and a half and then we can certainly go back um, in time yeah. a little bit further but when I talk about this historic wealth transfer, it was done on two levels. And I think most people understand I shuttered a small business. People couldn't shop there. Those dollars went to Amazon and Walmart and their revenue. Right. I think people understand that. The part that they don't understand is the trillions of dollars that the Federal Reserve printed, as well as, as suppressing the interest rates you know, abnormally and keeping them at, at almost zero percent. Um, and that is what enabled, in terms of the market, the multiple expansion and the asset inflation to the point where seven tech companies in 2020 gained $3.4 trillion in value. Oh, by the way, just about the amount of money that was printed during that period of time by the Federal Reserve. Coincidence? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, not a coincidence. Um, but basically, you know, they, they are... Suppressing these interest rates, if you are a saver, if you are a retiree, if you're somebody who's you're used to, to having some sort of return on your money when you invest it, uh, you put it in the bank, into a CD, into a money market fund, you're basically earning nothing because that's what they did to, to the market. Um, but then they go and they loan that out to companies at also almost no interest rates as well yeah. as throw all of this new money that they've created out of nowhere that devalues the money that's already in, in the system. Um, and the big companies then can access that capital and use that to compete with big businesses. And it inflates the value of those particular companies and it basically disrupts risk in the entire system. So if you're somebody who's trying to get a return on investment, you have to take on more risk in order to get the same return that you would have in normal times. Um, and it got to the point where, I mean, there was so much money that was put into the system and the risk was so far disrupted by all of this printing that some of the bigger companies had nothing left to do with it they started competing with individuals buying a single family housing. So like now you go out and you try and buy a house and you're competing yeah. with a private equity firm or a hedge fund or, or BlackRock um, yep. to purchase a house. And so this is all done because these quote unquote central planners um, think that they know how to, to manage the stock market and the, the overall economic system better than the free market does unfortunately all that does is it just keeps taking money away from main street you know the small businesses suffered the retirees suffered the savers suffered anybody who didn't own assets suffered right. and we're of course now paying on the other side of it with increased inflation which again if you don't own assets you're not getting any kind of ancillary benefit out of it and you know that that's the, the kind of the, the wealth transfer over time. And unfortunately, like you said, you know, this, this started in 1913, but it's really accelerated incredibly rapidly 
in the last 20 years, like really the last, you know, kind of whatever it is, six, 15 years now. I mean, it's it, the amount of money that has been printed, the amount of years that we have had 0% interest rates. I mean, it's just, it's unfathomable to think. Um, and, you know, part of the issue is that they have actually, not to say that their original mandate made any sense, but they ha they're not even fulfilling their original mandate. I mean, their original mandate is to stabilize prices. Obviously, you know, they're not doing a great job with that. Yeah, not so much. Um, and to maximize employment, <laughs> obviously, 10.4 million jobs, they're not doing a great job with that. And like, let's be honest, like, you know, any sort of monetary policy is not going to get anybody back into the workforce at this point in time. So what is really their agenda? And I, I keep talking about this hidden agenda, which is not that hidden from the Federal Reserve, which is to obviously prop up Wall Street for their buddies and their cronies, but also to give a shield for spending to the federal government, because the reality is that the federal government cannot afford for interest rates to increase because the overall amount of our national debt is so high that as it continues to increase, we're just going to spend more and more of our spending on interest expense to service that debt, which will crowd out spending on all these other ridiculous things that they spend on. Um, right. But, you know, at least that's spending on something and not just <laughs> servicing the debt. Um, and then also, I mean, people laugh at like this whole modern monetary theory, MMT, um, but basically, we have been monetizing the debts. I mean, the, the whole reason during these these rescue packages that we were able to put so much money out there, it's not like there was another country or all these investors who were standing by ready to buy like treasuries. The Fed was buying them. So they are at this point in time monetizing the debt and enabling the bad and reckless spending of the U.S. government that if they weren't there, uh, the government wouldn't be able to continue to do. So it, it's just a, a very sick symbiotic relationship. Um, and it's something that really needs to be reined in. But like, how many people do you know that have called their Congress person and said, hey, like, I really, could you bring up reigning in the Fed? Not enough. I, I know what. I, I was going to say, I know a lot, but I'm a libertarian. But in, in the general <laughs> public, not so many. In, in the general public, not so many. And it, it it's intentionally kept obscure and, yes. and arcane for that reason, right? Exactly. It, it's not visceral. It's hard it to make it. It was designed that way, right. Yeah, exactly. The two analogies I always use are, you know, imagine if you're playing a, a game of Monopoly and, you know, you and I are playing by the rules. You know, we have our turn. We roll the die. We have the fixed amount of money that we were given. We try to, you know, make money as well as we can by, you know, buying and selling and, and so forth and renting and, uh, you know, uh, developing the properties that we have. Uh, but there's a third player that can go to the banker and say, give me a billion notes and stick them with a bill for it. Or actually stick us all with the bill for it. Um, and they just get however many notes they want. Um, that's how they're gaming the system, not just in, and like you said, in the natural way, people understand that that means I can buy everything up, but what they also don't get is that it means that I can drive up the price of everything. So even with whatever amount of money you still have, or you and I still have that other player by 
making everything so expensive by buying everything up now what little money we have we can't even buy with that and and the other analogy i use is imagine if we had a you know a, a slice uh, if we had you know a pizza and i said okay you get eight slices of this pizza and originally or you get four slices of this pizza and it was originally sliced into eight then i slice it into 16 you still get your four slices but now you have a quarter of that slice when you keep printing out notes Federal Reserve notes without having a corresponding increase in the overall value of the monetary supply, you're making each one of those notes that much less valuable. Before I get into a whole rant about how the military industrial complex is toppling governments just to keep our monetary system afloat, which I mean, well, hopefully what we just I, I said. Want to react, I want to react to that because you know, on your monopoly example, I yes. feel like, you know, one of my friend's fathers because he used to do that. <laughs> oh, OK. Oh, he would do that. Give me a so, billion dollars. Yeah. You know somebody who plays Monopoly that way. Um, but, you know, I also just like it's interesting if you and I made up a bunch of money in our bank accounts and tried to go buy things with it, like we would call that fraud. Yes. Right? I mean, that that's you, like just adding dollars in and saying like, oh, I'm going to go buy Like that's considered fraud when you and I do it. it. Fraud, yeah. Somehow when the Federal Reserve does it, it's monetary policy. It's very interesting how that happened. And it's literally the exact same thing. It is an entity saying this money exists now. This I just made a trillion dollars and I'm, I think I'm going to give it to these same people I always give it to. And I'm going <laughs> to lend a bunch of it to the federal government and they can pay me back over time uh, by with federal with uh, treasury notes and everyone else will have to pay that off future generations that aren't even born yet which by the way if you haven't even been born yet and there's already taxes being run up in your name that's as close to taxation without representation as i could ever think of but what do i, I know um, Did you, have, you, have you ever tried to to take that one to court on behalf of like somebody's unborn kid i feel like that's a good that's a good thing to, to well, potentially that's try they don't have standing. They don't exist yet. This is the problem with the court system. We need laws that allow people that don't exist to sue. And then we can finally end the Federal Reserve by suing on behalf of the estimated 30 million kids or whatever they're going to be born. So all these things that are happening, we're seeing it. Many other people are seeing it. But it's not it's it does get mentioned in the mainstream media, but it's not getting covered the way that it should. I would imagine like this is the problem, not the yeah. nonsense they're talking about. Why do you think that it's not getting more coverage? So I, I have two working theories. I mean, obviously, I have no idea, but I always have a working theory about different <laughs> things. Um, one of it is, is that they're very complicit in the entire scenario as me, as media. And I think an examination um, truthfully, of all the things that they should be talking about would expose the fact that they've been complicit. I think the other piece, which is sort of a sign of the times, is the polarization of the sort of two major political parties and the fact that it's become you know, some part sport, part religion at this point in time. And the, the fact of the matter is that, that both parties are to blame. For this, you know, I have to point out to people kind of every day on Twitter who don't want to hear this, but like these bad policies, at least in the last 18 months, um, and then obviously, you know, things with the Federal Reserve before then and so on and so forth, like happened under the last administration and last Congress. And then the new administration, the new Congress, like doubled down and made it worse. 
but it's not like it just started like at the end of January of this year. And that's sort of an inconvenient truth for people. And the media is obviously very polarized um, by it as well. I keep saying like, if I would have called this Trump's war on small business or Biden's war on small business, that like many more people would be talking yes. about it. but nobody yep. nobody wants to hear that this is a systemic problem um and unfortunately i'm just a truth teller and that's just that's the reality of the situation and that's the story uh, but it's not sexy and it doesn't work in sort of a, a polarized sort of fantastical clickbait media situation so anything that is a systemic issue to, with people who are part of the problem becomes very difficult um, to talk about, and which is why you know the de- just like de- decentralized small businesses are incredibly important to the economy, and decentralized jobs via the gig economy are incredibly important to jobs, and you know decentralized finance is important to fight back against the Fed. Same thing with decentralized media. What you're doing here right now, Spike, and and all the people who are, are doing sort of these individual decentralized uh, media plays in different formats. That is a pushback against the corporate press. Yeah, there's two. I think there's two main things. It's like you said. There's this idea that if something is bipartisan, that means it's great. It's a great thing if both both sides of the entire political spectrum, because obviously there's nothing but Republicans and Democrats. If both sides agree, then that means that it's gospel. It's it is it is the best thing, despite all evidence to the contrary that, you know, the more they agree, the le- more likely it is to be a giant screw job for the vast majority of people on this planet. Uh, you know, it probably results in mass murder somewhere, uh, but it's bipartisan. Um but I also have to think that, you know, most media is controlled by the Jews. No, most media is controlled by seven. As, as, as is the weather, by the way, just to, to throw that out there, right? Yes. No, absolutely. It's controlled by the weather. South, the Jews have it out for Southwest. That's why only Southwest. Everyone's like, how could it be that only Southwest was affected by weather? And I'm like. You don't want to answer it with the obvious answer. Anyway, so I, I think that the I think that the problem is that you have most of these media companies are owned by like six or seven companies. And, you know, and those are the big companies that are making all this money. So it's sort of a, you know, a, it's sort of a, 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 a self-protecting system, which is, again, why, you know, our, my, the 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 I guess the 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 mantra of libertarianism not not that you're one but the mantra of libertarians and libertarian adjacent people such as yourself who quote harry brown and rothbard um are uh is is that we need to decentralize decentralization is not just more responsive it's not just more efficient it's not just more serving of of you know people with individual needs but it's the most ethical to for me to say you should have your power and your freedom and your money to be able to do what you want. I should be able to have the same for myself. We should be able to accumulate wealth and power based on what we're providing to the market, the value that we have, and nothing else. There should not be any coercion. It should only be you know, cooperation and, and, and so forth. So kind of wrapping things up, what are the things that we can do, and I guess on two fronts, on the political front and on the market front, what can we do to you know fight what's happening in government uh what would you say are like the top one or two things we should be doing and then what how can we best as individual consumers help uh and and as well yeah as individual consumers help with small business yeah i think the the political front question is one that i 
consistently grapple with and seek great answers for because there are so many people who want to do things and they you know they feel very helpless about it so uh, i don't purport to have the full answers here but you know small things that you know end up adding up is that even though you're somebody who wants to be left alone unfortunately fighting for freedom and individual rights and, and that protection of it requires ongoing attention and so you know getting not through coercion but just asking nicely people that you know that have similar outlooks or other small business owners um, who share some of the same ideas to get something really specific uh, whether it's raining in the fed or small business legislation or whatnot i always think like having one practical small thing to ask for and then doing the next one, the next one works better than kind of going macro and not really having direction, but call, like pick up the phone. I know everyone likes to email and text, like nobody calls anymore. And if you have like 50 people who all called a representative at one point in time, like they would flip out. (laughs) They wouldn't know what to do because nobody does it anymore. So all of a sudden it seems like, oh, this is a big thing that's picking up steam. Kind of like when Twitter trends a topic that has like 300 people talking about it. And you're like, why is this important? Because they said it was important, appears important and then self-fulfilling, it becomes important. So I think that, you know, that's, I mean, certainly the Fed, um, you know, everything kind of starts and ends with money. <laughs> it's just the sort of the way it is. Um, and then, you know, I'm a big fan of the whole concept of breaking up the duopoly. I mean, using the whole idea of antitrust against the government and the two party system. And obviously, I think this fits in well uh, with libertarians. I mean, the fact that um, because of the duopoly, libertarians aren't invited to speak in debates and we only have you know, a very limited set of choices i would be pushing more around that on the political front so those are just a couple of things we'd love to get your feedback as well um but on the commercial side i mean this is where you you have a ton of power um right because you get a vote with your dollars i mean that's what capitalism is and your know, people are not always sort of intentional and thoughtful. One of the things that I've done with my book is, you know, again, I'm a capitalist, so you can buy it wherever is convenient for you and and a good value for you. But I've been pushing people to go buy it from local bookstores or through bookshop.org, which is an online service that fulfills through local bookstores, because it would be ridiculous of me to sit here and talk to you about, you know, how <laughs> you've got this big business, big government, big specialist of triumvirate and go, and you can buy my book on Amazon.com. Um, so, Which is what yeah. I did when I gave the link to it uh, uh, in the original promo. I, I, I did the Amazon link. So I right, just got the... That's, that's our like default action. That's what we do. But I think it's important, like, you know, if you've got the holidays coming up, which, by the way, if you haven't started holiday shopping... Like do it now because there will be and do it now. left to buy come December. But consider purchasing your gifts from small business owners. Like when, when you're going to a restaurant, like think about doing something in your local neighborhood. And again, sometimes it's just a reflex. It's just like, I haven't thought about it. I just don't want to think about things. But that when a bunch of people don't think about things, then everybody ends up shopping at Amazon and the the uh, entire economy becomes consolidated in the hands of a couple of companies. And I don't think anybody wants to see that happen. So that was that was her telling me, you schmuck, why would you do the Amazon link? So I'm literally 
changing that right now. I, uh, I, well, wait, so, let, me, let me ask, let me ask you, cause I think it's important, you know, is there anything else politically that, you know, I should be adding to my messaging and, and telling people who basically feel helpless, Hey, I, I, I believe in all these things. Like you and I are simpatico. Like, how do I affect change? Like what, what is your advice on that? So I am a big fan of, like you said, calling people, calling representatives. Uh, Justin Mosh is a friend of mine. He was a he was a, a congressman up yes. until uh, this year, and um, he was in there for ten years. And he said, "You would be shocked at how few phone calls it takes for uh, people in Congress to go. This is a big deal, especially if they're coming from a bunch of different places. Yeah. If you know five people in this constituency are calling this person, and five people are calling this person, and five people, you know, five ten people are calling." Yeah. All of a sudden, they're getting together and going, "This seems this is a big deal." I, I think I think we need to get ahead of this now. Obviously, if a hundred people call Congress and say "end the Fed," that doesn't necessarily end the Fed. But you could maybe get the Pro Act killed. You could maybe get the CARES Act or or uh, whatever the, the the infrastructure bill greatly hobbled by some on the fence senators who go, I'm not voting for this. I don't think I'll get reelected if I do. Uh, so you can definitely at least help, you know, put, put some gum in the works. If, if the machine is basically, you know, working towards making everything worse, you can at least put some gum in the machine, put yeah. throw a couple of wrenches in there at the federal level. There's a lot more that can be done at the state level. Um, sure. You know, I, I've, I've seen a handful of people go to a state legislature and you get stuff unanimously passed. And I think there's a lot of stuff that can be done at the state and local level to get rid of onerous uh, occupational licensing laws, uh, civil asset forfeiture, which is routinely used against entrepreneurs who don't yeah. look like they should have that much money. Um, that kind of stuff uh, can greatly help. Uh, something as simple as saying that someone who has a criminal record uh, is should be allowed once they've done their time to be able to get a, a business license. You know, yeah. basic stuff where you know people that are the most in need of being able to to work their way up the corporate la- up the up the economic ladder uh, should be able to do so with as as little in, in, infringements as possible. But I think, yeah, I think as individual consumers, best thing we can do is to not do what I did, and I'm literally fixing it right now. Uh, is is I'm going to change this now. I'm, I'm literally going to delete it. Uh, here's where, and there were even people are like, why Amazon? And I'm like, cause that's where I found it. So you, you uh, answering your question, the reason wh- why I went to Amazon was I put in your book for sale, like, like the, the, yeah. the war on small business, Carol Roth for sale. First thing that comes up and, uh, Amazon audible, you know, all the main things. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think I even saw a bookshop. Here's where you can purchase Carol's book sorry um and now that's on there correctly uh but it happens you know and and you know we're so used to doing stuff on amazon it just it just happens but here's how we can actually help so uh first of all carol i just want to thank you for coming on uh this has been an incredible episode before i let you go i want to give you a chance to give any final thoughts anything that you thought you didn't get a chance to say uh anything that you would like to you know uh, uh any teasers from your book i got the graphic here your book the war on small bit anything that you want to promote that's coming up anything you want to say for as long as you want to say it carol roth of schneiderman electric the floor is yours Oh, thank you. Uh, I just I want to appreciate uh, some appreciation not only to you, Spike, but to the folks who connected us. I know the Eskimo Libertarian was one, so thank you for the idea. And I think that's the magic. As, as bad of a place as Twitter can be, sometimes I mean, how amazing is that? I said, whose podcast should I go on? 
they throw your name. I'm like, okay, great. If you reach us out, you reach out. And then as I said, like with less than 24 hours, we're having a conversation. Um, The fact that that can happen is tremendous and just shows Mm -hmm. the power of, again, the decentralized media. So thanks for the idea, Eskimo Libertarian and others who I probably missed in the giant thread. Um, And for taking the time to reach out and everybody who's been sitting here and listening. Um, If you are a small business owner, I will tell you, you did build that. You are the backbone of the economy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we should be incredibly grateful to you for all your contributions. I know that I certainly am. Um, and if there's anything I can ever do to be helpful, don't hesitate to reach out. I've got a contact form at carolroth.com. Um, try to, to help as much as I can. And I'm on Twitter at carolj.sroth. So ping me and I'll, and I'll try to help. And just appreciate the opportunity to um, share some thoughts with like-minded folks who I'm not in a party with, um, but just happen to have some of the, <laughs> a lot of the same ideas. <laughs> I don't like some labels. People- and then most importantly, um, it is opening night, the, the, the first uh, first game of the hockey season for the Chicago Blackhawks, who are playing yes. away at the Colorado Avalanche tonight. So I want to say go Blackhawks and um, you know, hopefully we'll have a, a good year because I can't take another crappy hockey year again. It's been it's been too much. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll continue the dialogue. I had a lot of fun. I did too. Thank you, Carol. Stick around. We're going to talk during the uh, outro. Uh, Folks, uh, the book, again, The War on Small Business, How the Government Used the Pandemic to Crush the Backbone of America uh, by Carol Roth. You can also go to carolroth.com. You can go to the bookshop.org link that is in the comments or on the show notes if you are listening to this as a podcast. Um, And, uh, you know, one day when Carol discovers uh, when one of us can discover what her political beliefs are best described as, then we can help her with that. So if any of you hear this, you can put in the comments what you think it sounds like. Uh, maybe we can help her find a political party other than the one she's been voting for for the last like 10 years. Um, but Carol, thank you so much again for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. And folks, thank you for tuning in to this amazing episode of My Fellow Americans. Why is it amazing? Because you're here. Well, also because Carol was here, but it's uh, it was an amazing episode. Uh, be sure to tune in tomorrow on Thursday at 8 p.m. for the Writer's Block, where my co-host Matt Wright is going to be interviewing uh, Anna. Oh man, I forgot her name. I forgot her last name. She's the chair of the Libertarian Party of Washington, and her name is Anna Johnson. I th- thought it was John. Anna Johnson. She is the chair of the Libertarian Party of Washington. She's going to be mad at me because I'm going to see her on Friday when I fly out to Washington State for the weekend. Come join me uh, Friday in Seattle, Saturday in um, in the Tri-Cities area, and uh, Sunday in Spokane. If you go to LP, let me put that in the notes, lpwa.org slash mass non-compliance. Let me spell it right this time so you don't get a 404 error. Uh, and if you come out, you can see all the events that I'm going to be doing. I'm doing like seven different events over the weekend. Come out and see me if you live in Washington State. Also, uh, on Friday at 8.30 Eastern, join uh, Noel and Nalik right here for Cajun and Eskimo from Bayou to Igloo. Uh, then on Monday at 8 p.m., uh, join Jason Lyon for Mr. Merica, the Bearded Truth. Uh, his guest is going to be Jessica Etheridge. They're going to talk about the difference between feminism and empowering women, I think. Yes. And then join us uh, Tuesday at 8 p.m. for another fantastic episode of the Muddy Waters of Freedom where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like this sweet little little 
little winter boys that we are. And then join me right back here Wednesday, same spike place, same spike time for another amazing episode of My Fellow Americans. Folks, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Spike Cohen, and you are the power. God bless, guys.